HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Hey folks, um, we are in another week of uh, isolation in varying degrees. For some of us, we are completely alone, and some of us wish we were completely alone because we're surrounded by others all the time. That is not the case for me. I am alone, um, but I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, today on the show, we are joined by Hannah Borkin. Uh, Hannah is joining us from Manchester uh, in the UK, and uh, near Manchester, I should say. Um, and Hannah's amazing. She is uh, Grief Eats on Instagram, and she's recently launched a supper club uh, for folks, young folks like herself, who have uh, experienced grief and loss. Um, and our talk with her was awesome. It's, you know, she lost her dad when she was 24, about three years ago, in 2017. Actually, almost exactly three years ago, as she mentions in the episode, the anniversary of his passing was very recent. Um, and... I just thought it was so cool. We connected um, via Instagram, and uh, I just, you know, I really could relate. It is such an alienating thing sometimes, as we go on to discuss in the episode, so I won't spoil it, um, to be going through grief, uh, loss of a parent, loss of, you know, anyone, but at a younger age, you know, not a lot of people have been through it yet. And so I really just thought what she was doing to try to create a community and a conversation around grief for people her age and, and you know it's not exclusive to folks her age but I just really thought it was a great way to process and deal with the loss and she was absolutely lovely and we were so honored to have her on we had some technical <laughs> difficulties at first and big thanks to our amazing engineer Amanda and to Hannah for sticking with it and uh, you know maybe Mercury is in retrograde or whatever or as my stepdad always says looks like mercury is in uranus which is a perfect uh stepdad joke i love it but anyway guys um i hope that everyone out there is hanging in there and that um these episodes have been helpful and uh as always please reach out if you need any kind of emotional support to processing at heritageradionetwork.org 
you can direct message us on Instagram. Um, please send in your listener letters. We'd love to read them on an upcoming episode. Uh, we are going to do a listener letter mini episode coming up, I believe, next week. And um, we love you, and thanks for tuning in, and take care of yourselves and each other. technical difficulties we're here with today's guest hannah borkin hannah am i pronouncing your last name correctly yeah yeah borkin is fine that's good cool um hannah is joining us from the uk uh where in the uk are you hannah um so i'm in leeds uh probably the easiest way to say it's quite close to manchester okay okay a lot of people know manchester if they don't know leeds (laughs) um but in the north of england basically Okay, amazing. Wow, like, what is, what's the vibe like? What's going on out there in the UK right now? Um, where you are? How is, how is, what's the temp? Um, well, yeah, things are pretty strange. Um, we're all on lockdown. So, um, I was, yeah, you can go to the shops once a day, you can exercise once a day. And if you're a classless and essential worker, you can still go to work. Um, but we're just working from home. And yeah, just getting through it like everyone else, really. It's just a a really strange time. A really, really strange time. Yeah, I think that um, everyone's kind of dealing with it in their own particular way. I think we're all really trying to make the most of it. Um, You know, Bobby and I have been particularly interested um, with how some of the people that we chat with and talk to are are dealing with everything given that a lot of our guests, I mean, all of our guests have experienced some kind of trauma or loss. Like is this experience with coronavirus and the lockdown, like contributing to which we're going to get into your specific loss in a moment. Is it, is it contributing to any kind of anxieties surrounding previous traumas or grief or anything like that? Yeah, I'd say um, I've definitely had a lot more time than I would usually would have to, to sit and think about, the losses from my life and the things I've been through. And I've, I've really just been reflecting a lot more and sitting down and maybe like writing my thoughts down or drawing a picture or making a really nice meal. And it's all been sort of in memory of the person that I've lost. Um, so kind of in a nice way, I've had a lot more time and space to, to do that. Um, but at the same time, on the other hand, it's, it's quite, tricky when you're like constantly just in that space where you're thinking about it 24 7 okay so yeah I mean I I agree I know that like the isolation the time to think the um I don't know for me too like I lost my dad as well and it just kind of has definitely I don't know just been a lot of time to think about loss from a different angle I think from from a little bit of a deeper angle which is really nice in some way and then in other ways it's been you know it's challenging it's like a bit it's a very intense uh mirror on the whole situation well the you know the fact is is that we have more time to be mindful and so that means that we can kind of notice and watch what our mind is thinking about and that's both like you said before it's both a gift and a blessing and and sometimes it can be a curse and hurtful yeah, but um, we have the ability since we're not so busy and we're not so rushing that we can notice more and make maybe make better choices as to what we want to think about and what we don't want to think about. Yeah. So Hannah, um, you grew up in the UK as well. I know you moved around a bit, but where where were you born? Yeah. Um, well, I was born in a really small village um, down south in the south of England, but I I left when I was seven and I didn't go back until university. So. I kind of don't really see myself as, even though I was born there, I don't remember too much from it. Um, But for the most part, I grew up in in Belgium, near Brussels. And and my parents were teachers, actually, so wherever they taught, I would follow. Um, So um, my dad then got a sabbatical job in Thailand, in Bangkok, so I followed there. 
Wow. Um, back to Brussels and then finally back in the UK for university. So what, what, were, what were they teaching? What was the, like, what age groups, uh, what subjects? Um, so teaching in international schools and my dad was um, a computer teacher, so IT. And my mum mm-hmm. would ta- uh, teach students with sort of learning and difficulties um, and sort of English as a second language. Wow. That's incredible. And so being that, you know, this is really interesting. A lot of times when we do these interviews, like we like to kind of try to find out, uh, you know, where did the interest in food come from or, or what were the first memories of food? But having moved around so much all over the world, uh, it's a, it's a, a, a more interesting than usual, right? Like kind of backstory. <laughs> um, where did the interest in food happen and what was it like uh, growing up so internationally? Well, I think... The interest with food sort of from as young as I can remember really I was always baking all the time um, so I was always baking for my family and I think sometimes it was maybe too much and there was too much cake to eat but <laughs> um, but I always remember and it always sticks with me that um, my dad absolutely loved cake batter so like uncooked cake batter so he'd always make ah before I cleaned up any of any of my mess I would have to leave the bowl out for him because um, he liked to lick the ball, huh? <laughs> um, that's he great. What? That's that's a, a how did you memory. first learn to bake? Um, I honestly can't remember. I think I might have just taught myself. I, my mum bought me like a sort of essential cake book. And I think I just read through all the recipes and just learned the basics and just went from there and I'd do it. I think something quite funny is that my parents would, have friends around and I would often sneak into the kitchen whilst their friends were just like chatting in the other room and I would I would make a batch of cake and <laughs> I'd ice them and I'd I'd go really over the top and then I'd bring them out to the guests Aww. without them knowing. Um, That's yeah. so cute. That's the thing that sort of sticks with me but I guess baking was something even growing up internationally I always um, I insisted, even when we lived in Bangkok and it was about 32 degrees outside, but I insisted that we buy a sort of mini stovetop oven thing so that I could carry on baking because none of the apartments in Bangkok have ovens. Oh. Wow. So I, I, yeah, I sort of made my parents buy me one of those so I could carry on, carry on baking as much as I could. That's amazing. It's so interesting. Like, I'm just thinking about what you're saying about being like a little kid and and baking the cakes and bringing them out. And it's uh, such an early um, kind of test of approval, you know, and like kind of just speaks to, I think, like all our um, innate desires for approval and acceptance. And when you kind of are young and you're just figuring out, oh, I'm good at this, this is how I can, you know, be recognized and approved and appreciated. And did you, do you feel, do you ever think of it like that? Do you ever kind of put it there? Um, I think, yeah, I just, I've, I've always loved cooking and baking and I've, I think what has always underpinned my cooking, whether it's sort of nice to eat or not, is that I hope that it brings people joy. So I'm always, even if it's just book, making a really simple meal for my partner or for my parents um, or my family, I was always hoping to see a smile on their face at the end. So I think, yeah, it's it's sort of bringing people together that is yeah. the important thing. And did you get that reaction as a little kid? Like when you would bake stuff and you'd bring it out, was that the was that the reaction that you got? Were people really psyched about it? I think so. I think I have two older brothers as well, and so the cake was pretty much gone within a day or so. <laughs> so I think that, that, yeah, it passed the test most of the time. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, mom, I don't know what you think about this because you know more about like, you know, obviously the psychology of our behaviors, but it's still just like really striking me as this really um, lovely and interesting way of just finding your place in the world with your talents, you know, and it's exciting as a young person to find a thing that helps you be appreciated. What is there like a psychological kind of idea of that like what what we're talking about well i i think you're saying it which is that you know children want to be you know seen and recognized but they also want and they want approval and appreciation but they also are trying to find out who they are and they Mm. get that from feedback from the world 
And so, right. of course, a family's feedback of, you know, appreciation and the smile on their face, um, you know, helps you determine what works and what doesn't work and, you right. know, what you, what you like. So, actually, I have a very sweet little story to add in here. Um, Zara probably remembers this, but when she was about eight, I guess, I had a private practice in the house. And I had a client sitting with me, and I hear a little knock on the door. And I opened the door, and there was a plate of chocolate chip cookies that had just been baked that she was baking for me and the clients. <laughs> so I think you and Hannah have something in common on that end. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's just um, I think it can take a really long time for some people who don't cook particularly to find their thing that gets them that kind of validation. And there is something about learning that you are capable as a cook at a young age that is like this um, kind of ticket to to acceptance which is like maybe we don't always think of it like that but I really do believe that is a thing um whereas maybe someone's thing that they're great at is designing clothing or or being great at um or tap like dancing a, a great I mean, writer almost, yeah you could almost picture a little kid you know tap dancing for their family or performing or and it's a similar thing it's what they love and it also feels really good to make other people laugh and smile and and that they appreciate you so of course, but the interesting right. thing about it with food is that like food is so universally appreciated and necessary that I yeah. think when you find out that you're good at cooking and baking and stuff at a young age, it's it's just very special. That's what I'm trying to. Yeah. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at here. Um, amazing. So, uh, did anyone else in your family like to cook? What was the uh, kind of food relationship with your fa- with your parents and your brothers and stuff? Um, I think. We were always quite a busy family, so both my parents were working and, yeah, we were all at school and I just remember, like, it always being quite sort of, not manic, but just busy, I guess. And sometimes food would be takeaway, sometimes it would just be quite a simple meal. I don't think it was ever, like, food wasn't, like, food was really important in our household, but it wasn't, like, the be-all and end-all. So I think as long as we were happy with the food that we were eating, then you know that was enough um but I I think I I was always quite keen to sort of take take the reins with the cooking and and try and try and do something whether that was cooking alongside my dad or alongside my mum or with my brothers I was always wanting to be involved yeah that's what we could just picture you doing it right now (laughs) so you didn't get into food as a profession you um got into being an, a, a diversity and equality researcher, which I think is really interesting. And Bobby and I were both really immediately um, sucked in by that. It sounds like an incredible profession. But um, can you just explain to us a little bit more, like, what what is that? And how did you get into this kind of line of work? Yeah, so um, I graduated from university about five years ago now, I'm trying to remember. Um, and I started in sort of more like consumer research, so understanding what consumers think about products. Um, But I guess when I found out the news about my dad, um, I got a really sort of fresh perspective on on what I was doing. And I was already having some sort of issues with with my line of work that I'd chosen. And I found everything to be quite commercial. And I I just, I I felt like I wasn't affecting people in the right way. and, And I wanted to be doing something that was a bit more... Um, had like a social element to it so mm-hmm. um, I, I used the research skills that I built up and and I tried to, as best as I could to move um, move my career towards an area that I was really interested in and and that was sort of equality and um, so at the moment I conduct research in higher education so in universities I look at um, equality issues among staff and students sure. Um, but yeah, so that it, yeah, it's been a long journey, um, but yeah. it's been really rewarding, and I got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. incredible. So you're saying you briefly mentioned, and we've been kind of you know talking around it a bit, um, but like a major life experience that you had in uh, regards to your family structure. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the this event? Yeah. So well, actually, when I was at university, um, I think I was in my second year um so my dad I guess a a bit of context really is that my dad was always a super keen runner 
Um, and actually, because he was a teacher at my school, so even when I was at school, I was a competitive runner as well. And my dad was my running coach. Um, so he was like the school running coach. So I was on his team and um, I was I was taking part in running competitions and he was always on the sidelines. And um, so running was like a really intrinsic part of our relationship. Um, and when I was at university in second year, he was on a run in Belgium. So that was where they were living at the time. And he had a cardiac arrest. Oh. But actually what happened was that I think, I mean, I wasn't there and the, the events were slightly hazy, but somebody was on a walk at the time who gave him CPR. And wow. I think the CPR was about 17 minutes until an ambulance oh arrived. And then yeah. they used a defibrillator. And uh, yeah, he survived that day. So that was, yeah, it was... Oh, wow. Yeah, a sort of crazy story in a way. Um, yeah. And... He eventually, he had a lot of recovery. He was in intensive care. Um, and it, it took a while, but eventually he'd had this job offer in Peru to go and teach in Peru. And he, he was just so desperate to go. So I think he really worked hard at getting better and he did get better. He was, he was given the all clear. So my mum and my dad moved to Peru and they lived there for about four years, I think. And my dad didn't do too much exercise um, during that time, I don't think. Um, but what happened was that he, he started to feel better and he felt more confident and he started running again. And he was training actually to, to raise money for the charity that had helped him recover the first time round. That's amazing. Yeah. And whilst he was training, um, had unfortunately had another cardiac arrest. Um, oh my goodness. And that time around I think well there was there was no one around him but I think the first person that found him said that there would have been nothing that could have been done apparently it it, it would have been quite sudden so Oh Hannah I'm so sorry when did this happen and how old was your dad? Um so my dad was 63 I think and uh-huh. this was in 2017 so about 3 years ago. Wow. Had he had any um, heart disease in his family or anything like that? Or was this just a complete uh, anomaly? Um, I d- I'm not, yeah, not that I know of. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've, that's one thing I haven't done actually is, is sort of delve into into my ah. history too much. But yeah, it would definitely yeah. be something, something to look at. But I don't think so. Um, yeah. I, yeah. And where were you and how did you find out about it? So I was... Um, living and working in Manchester at the time, which is the city I mentioned at the start, um, which is quite near to where I live now. Um, and it was quite strange, actually, because I would normally go to work at about 8am, I'd leave the house. But that morning specifically, I had left the house at about 7am because um, I was going to go to a um, physio appointment just before work. So I wasn't at home and my brother lives around the well he did live around the corner at the time and he had found out first and he had actually walked around to tell me in person um but just strangely that day I wasn't at home so there was nobody in um so he had to he had to call me up on my phone so I found out over the phone which I guess is not ideal but it was the only way to find out really how long had it been since you had seen your father and your mother I yeah I try to remember this and I think I think it would have been so he died in the April and I think I'd seen them at Christmas uh-huh. it would have been about about four months I think yeah yeah it's tough it's so it's really interesting because I think a lot of times people go back and forth uh speculating you know especially if you haven't lost somebody I find that people tend to have this conversation with themselves but um, about the, quote, best or worst way, least or most painful way to lose someone. And um, in some ways, you kind of had both with having your father um, have the first heart attack, but then survive. So like in the back of your mind somewhere, you know that there's, you know, a kind of lingering problem, like perhaps this could happen again. And then it also was sudden at the same time. So, I mean, I had... Have you thought of it like that at all? Um, 
Definitely. I think what was quite strange for me is that I did always have that lingering thought that it might happen again. But I, I think I was starting to relax by the last few years. And I thought that if I was to ever get a phone call again, because um, it was my brother that told me both times, actually. And I thought if I was to ever get a phone call from my brother again, that was at a strange time of the day, then I would know what it was about. But weirdly, when I got that phone call, I remember thinking it was nothing of it at all, and I just picked up as usual. Yeah. Uh, so I was so in a way caught off guard. Yeah. yeah, your trauma had subsided a little bit from the first incident, and you were off guard, like you say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a what a shock. Yeah, it is a you know I I lost my dad as well. Um, my dad had cancer for ten years. Um, and so I always told myself, like, oh, well, you know, I knew this was coming. I had some time to wrap my head around it. And my myself before his passing was, like, ready for it in some way. You know, I know it was probably a little different with your dad because he was pretty healthy. My dad was pretty unhealthy. But, I wa- but when it happened, I really wasn't ready for it. You know what I mean? I didn't – I had uh, – kind of prepared myself for a pain that was not in line with what the actual pain was. Is there any part of you that kind of had any similar feelings to that or? And what was it like for you? And in, do you mean in terms of? Well, I mean, when you, when you uh, do prepare yourself for someone's passing, you know, and it is a close call or it is a terminal illness, illness or something, I feel like there is a part of you that like, prepares yourself and you're like well when this happens I'll feel this way um I'm just wondering if that happened with you and if it did actually feel that way or you know what I mean the way you had imagined yeah I just I think I felt really unprepared and I think that even though I'd I'd had those four years to maybe process what had happened from the first heart attack and I think I just think I was so unprepared for for it actually happening. I think it was in the back of my mind that it could happen, but until it actually happens and you receive that phone call and you go through all the motions of of somebody dying and the immediate events after that, I, don't, I, I just think I, I could never be prepared. Yeah. Well, as we always talk about, you know, grief is about accepting a reality that's so impossible to accept. And so even when this preparation, anticipatory grief... And as Zara was saying, it's still so hard to believe. So what happened with your dad dying in Peru? How did, what happened after that? Um, So I think I was sort of propelled into a state of limbo, really, because I'm actually quite terrified of flying. So I decided quite early on with my mum that I would just stay put in the UK until my dad was flown home. um, Because... It might have been that I would fly to Peru and I would have only been there for like two days or it could have been longer. Yeah. It was just it was just really hard to know. And I, I didn't want to put myself through the pain of getting on a on a plane um, yeah. whilst going through everything. So we sort of came to that decision and me and my middle brother, we stayed here and my oldest brother went over to Peru. Uh-huh. But it, I think in total it took... It must have taken about four weeks um, to actually have my dad back in the UK. I think, I, yeah, trying to have a body flown home is must be a huge administrative task. Yeah. Yes, we've heard that before. Yeah, so I wasn't too involved with that process. And luckily, the school that my dad worked for, I think they, they paid for that process to happen. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it was it was a lot of paperwork and it was it was very difficult and it was just it was really strange for me um, in the UK because I wasn't there was no funeral to plan there wasn't really right. anything to do so I was just sort of sitting and I wasn't at work I was just passing the days in this really strange new reality. Yeah, what a limbo state! It almost reminds me what you were, we were talking about before about this state now with the virus, the coronavirus and the limbo state. So maybe that's part of the trigger for you now is that, you know, again, you're in a kind of a limbo state. But that's, that must have been really terrible. 
Yeah, really, like, just a, a weird waiting time. Um, are you somebody, Hannah, who is, um, just from knowing the bit about what you shared with us in our pre-interview, it seems to me, and, and I want to know, obviously, your take on yourself, um, are you a, someone who's kind of, like, a doer? Like, would you describe yourself as, like, a productive person, like, some someone who kind of, like, creates and makes things happen as, like, part of who you are? Yeah, I've always thought about this of myself and I, I think I'm just like a complete mix. So um, sometimes like I would really, yeah, just do. So when my dad had his first heart attack for his 60th birthday, I think I was only 21 at the time, but I knew that I wanted to raise as much money as possible. So I ran the Paris Marathon um, for his wow. 60th birthday. Um, and I'd never Amazing. run any long distance more than about ah. 10k before um, oh my god that's amazing I just went straight in for it and I and I did it and I raised um yeah over about a thousand pounds really and similarly wow. when my dad died um because he was he was on this run and he was doing this training run raising money for charity I I think the thing that I did whilst I was in that state of limbo was organize all of my family and friends to finish that run for him. Oh, beautiful. And um, so, and loads of people joined in. It was, it was really nice actually. And we raised over 8,000 pounds, I think in the end. So that's incredible. And what was the charity that, uh, that money went to? Um, so that charity is the British Heart Foundation. So, um, they do loads of work in the UK for people with heart conditions Sure. Um, but yeah, but I think at the same time, I'm very much a person who's really quite lazy. Right. Well, we're uh, we're multifaceted. We contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and but also I, lazy. Maybe it's that you're able to sit and just be. You know, <laughs> lazy is kind of a negative connotation to things, but it's 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 quite a gift to be able to just sit and be. Yeah, it is. It's another. It's actually like a way of. Um, not being swallowed up by your anxiety sometimes as someone who I also consider myself a doer quote unquote and sometimes I think it's positive and sometimes I realize it's maybe a manifestation of my anxiety so when I find myself sitting and watching a movie like and I'm being quote unquote lazy I'm like oh I'm actually just kind of <laughs> allowing myself to not be uh anxious so I feel like that's probably a good mix um I'm I'm making that assumption about you because you told told us that you started a pretty incredible thing um called grief eats which is so compelling and so like amazing and i'd love for you to tell us and our listeners a bit more about grief eats yeah so um i'd actually only run one supper club before the lockdown started so um Mm -hmm. it's quite a recent thing that i've set up but um yeah I, i do have lots of plans happening in the background whilst until we can sort of all get together again and um, oh. but it was it essentially stems from my own love of food so I think it was a bit of a I guess selfish ambition as well to be able to cook for a group <laughs> of people and I guess that validation that we were talking about before yeah that's kind of why I mentioned it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I want it to be a sort of collective space Um, where people can just come around a table and have a really nice meal, but also be there because they have a shared experience of grief. And I think the thing that I want to underpin the most is that I think everyone's been through such a hard time and actually I just think they deserve a really nice meal. Right. Can you walk us through, Hannah, um, a little bit like what Grief Eats is? So it's a supper club and you are inviting kind of people who have had the same experiences with grief to kind of sit around and and share those experiences. Is that yeah accurate? Um, yeah. So what I'd found is that, um, so I was 24 when I lost my dad um, and I'm 27 now. <laughs> Can't remember my age. Okay. Um, but I'd, I'd actually didn't really know anybody close to me who had lost something like a parent or a sibling. Um, so I, I just was really finding it quite hard to talk to people my own age who'd been through something so difficult. And what yeah. I found was that I was like increasingly reaching out to friends just if I knew they were having a tough time, just because I wanted to be able to like give somebody advice or 
talk have things to relate to um when I was talking to them and I thought well actually I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who are going through what I've been through um so I I sort of put it out on Instagram and sure enough um I sold out my first supper club um and I just invited um seven guests into my home um and we just had a really nice meal and we talked about all our collective experiences so oh my goodness it was really quite empowering and yeah just a really it was quite an intense evening um but in both a sad and happy way yeah what did you what did you make (laughs) so actually um for the first one um I was I guess I had a bit of a crisis of confidence and I didn't want to cook for the first one and organize the first supper club all on my own so I thought I'll team up with a local restaurant in Leeds and have them cook oh, for it. Um, smart. So, oh, sorry, there's the noise in the background. Um, so, no problem. Um, yeah, so I, I got them to cater for the first supper club so that um, they could also advertise it and I could say that I was sort of teaming up with a local, a local business uh-huh. as well. That's great. I love that. Yeah, so I hope to do that more in the future as well. So it's not just me cooking, but it's also sort of, um, showcasing different local businesses as well. Oh, which is nice. And did the people were they asked to uh, donate to the to the cause? Yeah. Did... So um, I just I just made it ticketed, and and people will just pay per head basically, and that just covers uh-huh. the cost of the food. It doesn't really make any profit. It's just it's just so people can can come and they've reserved their space and they know that they're coming into a sort of safe safe environment. Yeah, so, I, so it, it was a div- it was a diverse group of people who didn't know each other. So what was that like for strangers, seven strangers to come together that had this commonality, but they were all so different? Yeah, I think it was it was quite strange at first because everybody sits down, and I don't know if it was just nerves or maybe we were all really keen just to hear each other's stories right from the beginning but we sort of introduced ourselves and what had happened to us straight away um and that sort of set the tone for the evening but i i would never put any pressure on anyone to to sort of address the evening in any way i think that was just happened naturally with the people who came to the first supper club and um, yes yeah so i think it yeah it's totally up to anyone who comes to the supper club to talk about their grief as much or as little as they want and if if they want they can just sit and listen but it's Uh it's that they they have a nice meal in front of them and they're just there to hopefully have a nice evening right well you know it's interesting it's this it's similar to what I think we're doing with processing here is that the commonality in people's like shared love of food and how that can kind of just um be disarming Right, so you're like sitting down, there's like nice food, wine, everyone's kind of like then loosens up a little bit, right? It's like an easy way to get into a hard conversation, like something common to all talk about. And, um, you know, it struck me before when you were talking about uh, after your dad's death, finding it difficult to like maybe relate to your peers. I mean, you were very young, for sure. 24 is very young to lose a parent. But, you know, I lost my dad at, um, I guess, 34. And it was still hard for me to find people to relate to even then. Um, And it just strikes me, it it reminds me of something that, like, uh, Esther Perel, the uh, relationship and sex therapist, talks about a lot, which is that, um, you know, we are kind of told that, like, we can, we're meant to believe at this point in our, whatever, society, that we can kind of get any quality and any any kind of um, backup and reinforcement and emotional support like from anyone, right? So any friend or partner or parent can we can go to them as our confidant, as our entertainment for uh, you know comic relief. We can hang out with them. We can go see movies with them, like everything. But really, not every person can offer you everything, right? That's and that's true. A, very that, good point. It's a hard. It's a hard lesson that I had to learn mm-hmm. in my grieving process, and I still do, which is who to go to for what, you know? So, like, I was in a relationship 
for a couple of years and I kept trying to talk to this person about my dad's death and it was just not registering and I found myself becoming grumpy with them and they weren't mean about it. They just couldn't relate, you no. know, and a lot of people couldn't relate. And then I ended up feeling like too much or too dark or too whatever. And reality is I was like, I should just talk to the people who can relate. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so I think what you're doing is really smart because it's like just going to the light. It's going, you know what I mean? Instead of just like, trying to like you know square peg round hole it you're like hey like let's suss this out with folks that a can relate b want to relate you know it's even people who are very empathetic and sweet and lovely friends and warm it is a really hard thing to relate to if you haven't experienced like intense grief especially death of a parent it's really you know well i know to interject here and Zara, you and i have talked about this actually on another show even as your mom, even because this was um, Zara's dad died, I was no longer married to him. Um, but even as your mom, even as a bereavement specialist that helps countless people, I was unable to help you at times because I wanted to take your pain away. And that's not what somebody needs when they go through this. They need to be able to express it fully and share it. Right. So did you find that, Hannah? Did you, even though, you know, it's only been one dinner, but I mean, did you feel like a sense of like, camaraderie and belonging and like did it did it feel like oh phew finally I'm talking to people that get it kind of thing definitely I think people almost got excited in a way there was there were so many emotions flying about during the dinner but I think there was almost like an excitement that you finally found people who understand the intricacies of of what you're going through so I I think on some level your your friends the people that you know and love in your day-to-day life they they do get it they understand you're going through a rough time but those those tiny little moments in your life that mean a lot to you because you're grieving they're they're never going to understand those and it's not their fault it's just these things are just really difficult and quite complex and I think people just the people at the supper club just felt quite excited to have people who understand those really small perhaps insignificant things to other people, but it's really significant to somebody who's grieving. Yeah, yeah. Totally. You know, I'll share one more interesting aspect of this. I've run many bereavement support groups, you know, for spouses, for parents, for adult children. Um, and I, I always considered them wonderful and therapeutic. But after the group was over, eight weeks, you know, after the group sessions ended, the group would always get together and go out to eat together. And I think mm. there's something about the communal sharing of food that adds, I don't know if it's just a more of a realistic or a relaxed or um, just a different environment. So, And many of these groups would continue for many years together going out to eat. Well, that's so interesting. I'm sorry to cut you off, Bobby. It no. reminds me just for a moment of how there's a trick in filmmaking of um, a lot of times the reason why you see people eating in films is to bring it back to like making this a real actual relatable character study because real people eat. Right. Right. So like a lot of times when you see, you know, filmmakers using eating, it's to, to make, you know, the viewer realize that this is, these are real dynamic people and it's not just like an act and whatever. Um, because I think that like eating is like a real, (laughs) it's a real, real thing. Right. So I think in the same sense, like, you know, getting together with people and, you know, breaking bread, it's, it's a thing. It's a way of really kind of, um, I don't know, making the conversation real. Yeah, that's true. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. 
Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. So uh, how many of the um, grief each did you do? Um, so I only did one <laughs> before the ah. started. So it's a really recent thing. Um, so yeah, yeah. During, during this lockdown, I've been sort of working away on new plans and writing and different things. Um, so yeah, um, but I, I've had so many messages from people before or during this lockdown who couldn't come to the first one because... I can only fit seven people in my house um, <laughs> and there was there were like so many people who missed out or just yeah perhaps didn't pluck up the courage to buy a ticket the first time so yeah there's there's so many more people who who want to be involved um, and see this as a really important thing so it's it's really promising um, for my plans for the future. Oh that's so good and have there been many um, deaths in your area from the coronavirus? not that I know of personally I think that's one of the strange things is that you turn on the telly and grief is just everywhere you look at your phone and it's there but in my immediate life and and touch wood yeah people close to me I I haven't heard of any stories so it's it's yeah it's, it's surreal and it's it's hard to find it believable but it is and it's really sad and yeah yeah you had mentioned, right. Hannah, that um, your dad, uh, the anniversary of his passing, like, recently came, right? When was it? Yeah, so it was on the... So with the time difference, my... Because my dad died in Peru, but we found out in the UK, so we do always get confused with the actual date. Um, but I think it was the 17th or the 18th, one of those two days in April. Okay, yeah. But, yeah, I think normally I would... I, well, it's been three years, but I, I had established a small ritual of at least going to the cemetery and and being there. Um, and obviously that's not something I could do at the moment. So naturally, I just found myself gravitating towards making his favourite foods or the foods that he used to make for me as a way of remembering him in a, in a slightly different way, I guess. Wow. Uh, so what were some of those things? Um, so we, so my dad's signature dish, I guess, was um, a lamb curry. So um, I went, me and my yeah. partner went um, to the effort of making that from scratch. Um, so with all the spices and also making homemade <gasps> naan bread and everything to go with it. So wow. um, I think, yeah, it was immediately, I haven't actually had a lamb curry in, in years. And uh-huh. it was so like just the smell and the taste, it was really evocative of... Yeah, and brought back a lot of memories. Oh, that sounds so We talk delicious. about this a lot on the show. We, it's like a ritual that you're describing of getting the ingredients and the spices and grinding them down and the smells and the preparation and then the eating it. So that sounds like it was a beautiful ritual f- to honor your dad. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Are you? Uh, what is your heritage, Hannah? Um, so my family are Jewish, actually. Uh, okay. So, yeah, um, going way back. But um, I was brought up in quite a sort of liberal, non-religious household, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I still had some of the some of the nice sort of rituals and holidays and things we'd we'd celebrate them. But yeah, sort of free to free to do our own thing, really. Nice. When you said lamb curry, I just was wondering. I know that Indian food is very popular in the UK, and I didn't know if maybe it was uh, cultural that you were making that because you are of Indian heritage or it was just something that like was a specialty of your dad's so what other kind what other kind of stuff lamb curry and what else um so yeah it sounds like a bit of a strange mix but um we decided for dessert um so when my dad was little he I guess in in terms of like a food exchange because I would always make cake and my dad would always make me popcorn um So, yeah, he would always make popcorn and then he would, um, when it was cooked, he would cover it in, it doesn't sound very healthy, but he would cover it in butter and golden syrup. Ah, Ooh, wait, what's golden syrup? (laughs) I don't know if you have it in America, just sort of like a a light treacle, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's like a uh, butterscotch, a light butterscotch syrup. Oh, it's... I'm trying to think. It's sort of yeah. a cross between honey and maple syrup. <laughs> Ooh, ah. yum. 
Oh my god, it sounds delicious. <laughs> Sweet and not very good for you, but again, that was something. Who cares? <laughs> I haven't made in in years, and it, yeah, it just took me right back making it. Um, it was really nice. Yeah. Oh, that's what a beautiful amazing. story, Anna. Yeah, that sounds really lovely. What was your dad's name? Um, Ivor. So I V O R, which is a Welsh name, uh-huh. actually. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. That's lovely. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that what you're doing um, with this new project with Grief Eats is awesome. That's how I initially connected. And, you know, it's just, I want to kind of go back to a little bit we were talking about before about finding your people, about what, you know, who to go to for what. It's not just important for yourself and, you know, um, forming those relationships that are restorative and healing with the right kind of people who are there to support you. But it's I think it's really important also for... Um, your other relationships, you know what I mean? It's, it's important it, to be able to get your needs met around surrounding your grief and be talking to the right kind of people because it helps support your, you know, if you're in a, a partnership, intimate relationship, or even just like your friendships or your other familial relationships with, with folks who maybe aren't pr- able to provide you with what you need in that sense emotionally um to be able to find the, the right folks to support you helps those relationships because you don't build resentment like why can't you understand me or like i need you for this and it's a very very good point sir excellent point yeah it's just like yeah. a healthy good thing to do so i think like what you're doing whether that was conscious in your decision making or not um it just helps support a whole life i think in the grieving process yeah so yeah so when you think about it your grief eats is helping seven people and then seven times two times three times four so yeah. there's a lot of a lot of people you're helping no really for sure because you know it's just it's something that everyone's going to come to at a different point right we all all come we'll all get there um, but we're not all there at the same time. And there's very valid reasons, I think, for people not being able to access that. You know, simply you just can't necessarily relate until you've been through it. It's also scary to try to relate beforehand. So, Especially I, as a young 20 to 30-something. Hannah, yeah. did you tell us that that's the age group, the 20 to 30s? Yeah, so um, I decided to go with that age group. I guess it's, it's there's no, really, no real limit on it, but I just felt like those were the type of... Uh, because I was having difficulty finding people my age who'd been through that and I guess it's quite yeah. when you lose anybody at that age you're you're going through a particular set of circumstances in terms of your life stage so um I guess that's the most relatable when you're trying to talk to other people who've who've been through it yes absolutely totally well you're doing really important work and it's been an honor to talk to you and we can't wait to hear more about um, what you are going to do with Grief Eats after people are allowed to kind of be social again. Um, is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners about, you know, how to follow along with what you're doing, how to get involved, anything else that you want to promote? We'd love to hear. Um, well, at the moment, yeah, just um, working away at my Instagram. So building up a following there. So that's just um, Grief Eats is the handle for that. Um, but I'll also, I'm trying to take my time to perhaps build a website. Um, I'm writing quite a lot on the topic of grief, um, and especially grief and the in, sort of uh, intersection with food, but also what's happening with lockdown at the moment. So, yeah, I think just keep keep your eyes peeled if if you're interested, and hopefully people will follow along. Great. So, what will be your website? Grief eats. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, like keep us in touch. Yeah. Please do. And if you if you ever um, come to New York, you know, we'd love to talk to you about potentially we could do maybe we could do some kind of dinner party together because we're definitely really interested in what you're doing and it's a beautiful gesture and a way to participate. And you know, in the beginning of our conversation, I was just kind of trying to ask you a little bit about. Um, you know, using your baking skills as a kid to kind of connect and find, um, you know, validation and purpose. And it seems as though you're still doing that. And that's amazing. You know, it's wonderful when you find something that you're good at and passionate about that is, uh, you know, can start as a tool for, you know, 
being accepted and loved and seen and appreciated. But um, sometimes later in life, it becomes, I think, a tool for real survival. And it seems like that's what's happened for you. And that's really beautiful and really wonderful. And it seems like you're really using that to help other people get through their trauma and grief too. So, you know, bravo to you. And not, I mean, to do that at any age is amazing, but you know, you're still such a young woman and uh, it's just really inspiring and a really beautiful and very generous gift that you're giving people. Yes. Yeah. And keep, keep safe and keep in touch with us. Yeah. Yeah. Like definitely will. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your... (laughs) Oh, please do. And thank you for your time and for your patience for all you guys who are not with us at the beginning of the episode. We're having like a very, um, I feel like a lot of people can probably relate to this in one way or another. You know, we're all adjusting to this like new way of interacting with each other. And a lot of it is digital and virtual. And, you know, even for people who are accustomed to living that way and being comfortable with using technology, it's still wonky. And weird. <laughs> right. And, and then, no, but really, like, I think it's even just worth mentioning because, like, you know, we had this whole, um, like, 20 minutes of trying to figure out how to get um, Zencaster and it wasn't working. And then, like, my fucking recording wasn't working. And it sounds just like, oh, man. But then we had to kind of then delve into this conversation talking about grief and death and you know, you're being so vulnerable, Hannah, and speaking to us for strangers and all this. And so I think just the adaptability mode that we all are in is, it's interesting and it's cool. And, you know, thank you for your time anyway. But then beyond that, thank you for your time and like dealing with the frustration and then jumping right into a really vulnerable vulnerable conversation. Yeah, with absolutely. Two nutty strangers. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you thank you for having me yeah thank you so much for your time and um i'm so sorry about your dad and it's hard it's really hard to lose a parent and it's really uh it's hard to lose a dad i don't know it's just it's this weird empty space that um you just can never exactly really fill again and i think with a lot of loss that's just something we have to accept but you know i don't know how you feel about it but i think just loss of a dad is just this constant uh constant quest to just accept that maybe that hole doesn't get filled and then how do you then fill fit what's the mortar then you know what i mean for um this loss of like a you know a, something that we view as strength and protection and guidance and you know a father fills a very specific kind of um piece of your heart and uh you know it's really hard so I hope that I wish you all of the best and sending big hugs and vibes in your uh yeah, in your quest good healing to, find to that. you. Yep, continued healing, Hannah. I will try. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you later, okay? Take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.